So I don't speak very well sitting down. Um, when I moved to Loganville uh, five years ago this October, um, I had never owned a gun and or gone hunting ever. Uh, I think you get into that if your dad's into that, and my dad wasn't, and so we didn't. Um, but when we moved out here, we, started, we made some friends who were very much into gun culture, and so we'd go shooting with them. We slowly acquired, it's not what I would call an arsenal, but some guns, um, there are those who have an arsenal, believe me. Um, and we also have been hunting a couple of times. Actually, Lisa last year got a deer. I have not done that yet. And so I've got to hear about it for a year that she provided meat for the table, and I have not yet. So this year, pray for Rager, but pray for me that I'll also provide meat for the table. Um, we, uh, when I, the first year I was here, Steve came to me and said, would you like to go on a quail hunt? And I was like, yes, because I've always wanted to do this, but it, I was totally frightened. I'm just like, I just don't want to Dick Cheney this situation. <laughs> you know, I mean, like, it's just ringing in my head, like, let's be real careful. So I'm like reading all these things. I know nothing about what we're about to go do. So I'm reading all the stuff online about the etiquette and how not to get shot, basically, and all of this stuff. I don't even care if I kill a quail. I just want to leave with no lead in my skin or have placed it in anyone else's. <laughs> Honestly, that was victory for me. But the coolest thing about this whole thing was watching these dogs work. And I don't know if you've been quail hunting before, but I love dogs, and they... It's incredible to watch. They release usually two dogs. They have a bell around their neck, and they're running, and you're just hearing, you're walking slow, and they are going full speed. They love their job. They're just flying through these fields, and all of a sudden you hear this bell stop because they've found a bird, and they're just still looking at it. You can tell probably inside they're like, I just want to kill this bird, you know? But they've been trained not to, so they just sit there, and they're pointing at it, and you come up, and then they send the birds flying, and you shoot one, and the guide says, dead. And that dog knows, oh, i got to find a dead one now. I'm not looking for a live one. And goes and finds the dead one, brings it over to the guide, and hands it to him. I'm like, that's magic. I can't make my dog do anything. <laughs> um, it's crazy to watch. And so the cool thing about quail hunting is not sitting being quiet in the woods. It's walking along, having a conversation. You don't have to be real quiet. So we're walking along, and I look at the guide, and I say, how do you do this? How do you teach them? And he said, well, 80 to 85%, they're born with. They know how to do it. I'm like, 80 to 85%, they just are born to do. Because generations to generations on generations on generations have hunted. And they're born wanting to go find some birds. He said, so we just have to take that last 20, 15% and make them good hunting dogs. We've got we to gotta hone that in these skills that are implanted in them. Beautiful thing to watch. I can't help but think about us when I think about those dogs. Hang on. Because much like them, you were born to worship. You were born to be with your God. 
And whether you decide to or not, it doesn't matter. You will worship something. You will apply your affection and attention to something. And so what we're going to try to do today is try to make sure we are directing our worship in the proper direction with the right perspective, shifting, shifting some of our perspective from maybe what you thought it was we were doing here or what you're doing when you pray alone or any section of your life. So in John 4, Jesus has this encounter with the woman at the well, a story you've heard. She's a Samaritan, and Jesus from the very beginning is trying to shift her perspective about, honestly, her whole life. And he does it by shifting her emotions all over the place. It's pretty crazy when you think about it. She's coming midday because there's some uh, decisions she's made in her past that have led her to some shame, and she doesn't want to be there when everybody's there. So Jesus begins by saying, hey, would you draw me some water? And the Jews and the Samaritans do not like each other. And so her response is shock. Who are you to ask me for water? And then he says, well, if you knew who's asking you for water, you'd ask him for water because I offer living water. You'd never thirst again. And all of a sudden she moves from shock to, I don't have to come to this well anymore. Please, give me, give me this living water. She's leaning in like, I, I want to know about it. Tell me anything I need to know because I'm tired of experiencing all of this. And he says, okay, we'll talk about it. Go get your husband and we'll have a conversation. And she, I assume, drops her head and says, well, I don't have a husband. He says, yeah, you're right. You've had five and the guy you're living with now is not your husband. And back then that was like calling, a, saying that sentence was like calling that girl a bad name. Saying, hey, you've lived your life in some interesting ways. You've made some bad decisions. And she's now pulled to this other direction. And she does like we all do when we're confronted with our sin. She retreats. She immediately says, hey, I see you're a prophet because he knows some stuff he shouldn't know. Uh, so let's talk about worship. She says, my people say we should worship on the mountain. Your people say we should worship in Jerusalem. And he says, yeah. okay, we can talk about worship. You worship what you don't know. We worship what we do know. The Lord is seeking people who worship in spirit and in truth that has nothing to do with the location. And through this conversation, you see her move from being obsessed with just not seeing anyone and hiding from her shame and worried about her reputation to opening up to, you have to see this God that I've seen. He shifts her. This is a story we've heard a lot. But our perspective on what God is looking for us in worship and our, how we see him is so important when it comes to worship. And keep in mind, not just when we come in here to sing or study his word, wherever he places you, how you worship him with your life. So spirit and truth is something I've thought about for almost 20 years. Because this statement, this is the worshipers, the, the father seeks, well, this is my job. So I want to be the kind of worshiper the Father seeks. So what does this mean? Okay, I used to separate these big in my mind. I'd say, okay, well, this means like knowing the truth of God and then being emotionally attached to it and somehow they meet. Now, I honestly, I think they're so woven together. It's hard to separate them because as the truth of God is revealed to you, 
You can't help but be moved by it in your spirit. So this is how God wants us to approach him. He wants us to see him clearly, love him for who he is, and be provoked to emotion for the the things that he's doing, for the lack of justice in the world, for, for the things that are on his heart. We move with those things. You know, in Psalm 51, 17, it says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Sacrifices being worship here, right? And sometimes we hear lots of words um, in church, and we don't bother to define them. At least I don't. I used to not. I used to think, I'll just hear it enough, and I'll figure out the context, and then it will work for me. But I think it's important for us to look at this word contrite heart or contrition which is sorrow for and de- detestation of sin with the true purpose of amendment arising from a love of God for his own perfections. It is not enough for us to just feel bad about the bad decisions we've made. We want to desire the perfections of God. We want to know that he's better and be seeking him in all of that. This is why we try to avoid sin to honor him and love him. And he doesn't want you to do this out of sheer willpower. He wants you to fall deeply in love with him. He wants you to have a revelatory experience about how great and majestic and powerful he is. And I lack the words to do that. Because there's been many times where my perception of God has been too small. I was playing guitar for slash chaperoning a high school choir tour when I was like 28 years old. And I know what you're thinking. He lived a crazy life, and you're right. <laughs> um, no, it was, uh, it was a fun trip. We were uh, going through several states, through Texas and Mississippi and Alabama, and we, we ended up in Louisiana. And we, were, we stopped in New Orleans. We got there midday. Um, we weren't going to be singing until the morning, and so they said, hey, let's separate into groups, and you guys can go eat wherever you want, and then we're going to meet up at this uh, place to watch some jazz. Um, and I think I was the only one who appreciated that. All high school people were like, jazz? What? I was pumped. And so we're going to meet up there, then we'll come back and get ready for the next day. I'm like, cool. So they separate into groups. I've never been to New Orleans, um, but... Uh, I've always wanted to, and I was, I was excited, and so I, I guess I just wasn't paying attention when they separated the groups, but they gave me and 10 16 to 18-year-old girls. Most of them I've known since they were 12 years old, you know, and I had little girls at the time. Mine were, mine were tiny. Um, they weren't there with me, but we went, we ate and dinner, everything's fine. We come out, and it's dark, and something happens in New Orleans when it gets dark, where it's like all of a sudden there's all these dudes on the prowl and they're like walking by and they're like checking out this group of girls that I, I'm walking behind. And this I wish this was an exaggeration. I'm not saying I handled this right. But I was walking and I'd see, I was just watching their eyes and I'd see their eyes move towards these girls and I'd go, hey, no, stop, no, move along. I was thinking, think back to the karate you learned in the third grade. Just in case <laughs> this goes poorly, you will be prepared. I mean, I didn't know what I was going to do if one of these guys was like, why are you yelling at me? 
But I was freaked out because it was, it was wild. It was way... So anyway, we make it to this place. Everybody's safe, luckily. We, um, we're waiting for the show to get out. We're waiting in a line to go in outside the venue. There's a couple little shops. That all of our students are kind of floating through. And I see a small group of our students walk into this voodoo shop. And I go, oh. So I run in there because I'm going to save them from being cursed or something. I, 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 I don't know. I go running in there. And... Um, I've never been in a voodoo shop before, right? I didn't really know what I was even going to see. And I come in, and there's several statues of Jesus like this big. There's a couple statues of Mary. By the look of some of your faces, you're like, really? Yeah, there is. And then a whole bunch of weird stuff. I have no idea what it is, okay? And as I walk into this place, I notice all of that, and one of our students is talking to the guy behind the counter about this very thing and says, why do you have statues of Jesus in here? And he said, well, uh, voodoo was brought here by the slaves. And when they brought over, the Christian missionaries said, hey, uh, this is your new God. And she gave him a statue. And they said, okay, cool. And they slid it up on the shelf next to all their other idols. There's one more God for the bunch. And in that moment, in a voodoo shop in New Orleans, God spoke to me very clearly and said, that is what you do. You see me as so small, as some tiny little piece of your life. You just put me as the same priority as everything else. And you let these things steal, my, steal the worship that is rightfully meant for me because you just don't see me as big enough. You don't see all that I offer. So that rocked me. I took him out. We went and saw the jazz. It was a great night, but I'll remember that forever. Idolatry is a big problem, and it can be sneaky how it enters into your life. Because once again, you're built to worship, so you will worship something. And whatever you're worshiping is taking your affection and your attention. It's consuming your time. And how to identify what might be idols in your life can be a little difficult, maybe. But let's ask a couple of questions. What really makes you angry? Okay? Is it... Seeing like injustice in the world, or is it when your team loses? Is it when you see like famine and poverty, or is it when a different political opinion is voiced loud to you? What is consuming your time? Is it the things of the Lord? Because as Rager shared up here, I don't care if you're cleaning a house or walking through Kroger. These are times that you can worship. And in those conversations, asking God to lead you through those, every part of your life he wants to be involved with. But your perspective of them has to be big enough that you can say, yeah, you could be part of every single thing. It's not just when I walk in here and I've given you this little piece of time. Okay, so we must expand our view of God. I know that I have to. I have to go back and remind myself because it's just easy to get caught up in all the stuff we have to do and then I lose it and I start treating them like that little idol that I slid on the shelf amongst my work. Because you could idolize anything. It could be your job. It could be your own comfort. It could be like getting off work and I want to sit right here and do not bother me. It, it could be your family. These things could become the object of your affection above the Lord. 
And this is where we find difficulty. So let's take a moment to try to perceive the grandeur of who God is. Okay, you all saw the eclipse happen. Hope you, don't, you didn't look directly at it, <laughs> but hopefully you looked goofy with those glasses on or did something with a cereal box I saw people do. Here, we can see 3% of the sun, which is 93 million miles away, approximately. 3%, and you could still see everything. I could have played cards out there. Felt dusky, but you know, it was still pretty bright. 93 million miles away. And the God that you come here to serve brought that into being with one sentence. 93 million miles away. And we witness the glory and grandeur of God all around us. But sometimes it takes something like an eclipse to make us go, oh yeah, this is pretty crazy. Because I remember coming, driving through the mountains in California a year ago in May, and I was talking to my aunt who lives out there, and I said, God, it's been a while. These, the mountains out here are beautiful. And she goes, I don't even see them anymore. Because I drive between them all the time. It's become ordinary. It said that the familiar becomes unfamiliar. I don't see it anymore. But the grandeur of who God is, you have to continually come back, check that shelf, make sure I'm putting him up. I'm seeing him as the biggest, most important thing in my life. You see these glimpses into heaven inside the scripture to try to rock your brain around this thing, which they lack the words, I lack the words to show you how powerful and amazing this God is. But let's just run over it because it'll be fun. Isaiah 6, okay? He says, in the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. There's a couple of things just in that one, say, one sentence, okay? If you know anything about the history of Israel, when there was a good king, things were good. When there was a bad king, things were really bad. And Isaiah was, or sorry, Uzziah was a good king. Okay, so when Isaiah writes this, he's saying, yeah, King Uzziah has died, but I've seen the Lord high and lifted up. No matter who sits on this throne, I know who sits on that one. And he goes on to describe this view of heaven that is mind-boggling. He says, the throne of the Lord filled the temple. Angels are flying. The glory of God is so intense. They're covering their face and their feet with with two different sets of wings, flying with the others, calling out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And as Isaiah witnesses this, he says, woe to me, I am ruined. I should be dead in the presence of God. In Ezekiel 1, we see a similar view of heaven where he he's, gets this glimpse before all this writing he does, and this revelation where he, he's at a loss for words. He says, I look up and I, I see this image. It looks like the image of a man from the waist up. He's like, it's, it's like metal that's on fire. And then I, I feel like when I read it that he didn't know what else to say. So he's like, and then from the waist down, it's, it's also kind of like fire. Just very fiery. It's, in, it's in very intense. Right? And he falls on his face because the glory of God is difficult for us to stand right with it. Impossible. Then in Revelation 4, we see a similar view of heaven from John, where he sees all of the people around, the elders around the throne room, worshiping him, casting crowns before him, thunder and lightning, calling out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The earth is filled with his glory. And they're rocked by these experiences. We need to get rocked. We need 
for God to reveal himself here. And this phrase, holy, 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 is vitally important. You hear, you say the word holy all the time in church, right? And so what is familiar becomes unfamiliar. The word holy means set apart or an otherness, okay? And when, I, when they say this three times in the Hebrew, they're trying to, anytime they say anything three times, they're trying to emphasize what they're saying. They're saying, this is like nothing else. He is like nothing else. I promise you, he's like nothing else. Holy, holy, holy. In all of these encounters, each of these people are ravaged, one, by the glory of God and are appalled by their own sin and the sin around them. Because when they see it face to face, they say, how could we choose a less wild lover than this? So we have to address our sin when we talk about worship. To say that our sin does not affect our communion with God would be would not be the uh, best idea because as we know, we are so compartmentalized and our view of God can be so small that we can believe that we can live one way during the week and show up in here and have this great emotional experience. We want to honor the Lord. My wife would never let me love her like that. Well, I'll love you when I'm home, but I won't any other way where else. The Lord doesn't want to be loved any other way, no matter how graceful she is. That would be unacceptable. Paul writes in Romans 6, What shall we say then? As we continue in sin so that grace, should we continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who've died in sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? See, God is asking for all of you. Now you will sin. And this is where his grace comes in. But longing to honor him truly only happens when you've had this revelatory experience about who he is and the depth of his love for us. John Piper says this, until a congregation is devastated by the outrage and horror of our sin as demeaning and belittling to the glory of God, accompanied by a majestic vision of God's glory in justice and holiness and wrath, until those two realities are taught and felt deep down, the reality of grace and mercy will not be rightly known and cherished by a congregation. It's rough. I, I read that word demeaning and belittling to the glory of God. And I cringe a little bit, but I think it's so important. You want to understand grace? Understand that your sin is belittling and demeaning. You want to understand mercy? Understand these things. We want to open up our worship experience. We want to commune with God more deeply. And you know, most of us, we have a history of abusing grace. We say grace isn't really appreciated until you've abused it when you understand that it's been there for you. But no more. It's time to grow up. You're a new creation. Fall deeply in love with Jesus. 
We need to see how God sees us too. Not only do we need our perspective of God to be correct so that we can stand in awe and wonder of who he is, but we need to really understand how he sees us. And that can be the hardest part because we know our own darkness. Some of you, I don't know why anybody shows up at church. I make no assumptions anymore. But what I've seen in the past is some people show up because they don't want their kids to do drugs and so they think if they're here, maybe they won't. Or they think there should be some proper morals taught. But this is far more than a moral code. This is a love affair and a relationship. So how does God see us? In Matthew 6, Jesus gets away to pray. Disciples come and find him. And they're in awe of how he prays. They say, like, how? could you teach us? How you pray like that? He says, yeah. When you pray, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then in this way. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name, and so on. Said that, I said that prayer all growing up. Had no idea what half those words are. But in those two first lines, he embodies the two things that I'm talking about here. He says, hallowed be your name. Holy is your name, Lord God. You are set apart. You are different. You are above all things. But in the first line, our Father who is in heaven, he rocks these disciples because up until this point, the Jews wouldn't even say Yahweh out of fear because their respect and reverence was very high. They would say the, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And what he said, the word for father there, he says Abba, which would be daddy or my dearest father. So they move from this formality, respecting the power, and he's trying to engage their spirit to say, approach the king as a 16-month-old baby would approach their father. This can, grabbing these two perspectives, the grandeur and power of the God who can speak something like the sun into existence and then says, come here, I want you to be with me, can be difficult to grasp when you know your history. And the fact that the way that Jesus loves you is difficult for us to understand too because even the phrase unconditional love, I can't extend it and so it's hard for me to, under, to understand. Because the fact is, if last night you were hammered drunk and today you're hungover, but in 15 minutes you surrender that to Jesus right here, God loved you the same last night as you were drinking, the same when you woke up this morning and hurt, and the same after that moment right there. And if you were at a three-hour Bible study last night pondering the things of God, and then you got in a horrible fight with your wife in the car on the way here, and you were screaming at each other, God loved you the same in the midst of that Bible study as he does when you're not watching your words. That's a hard concept for me to grasp as a human because my love is measured. It's So we have to ask God to reveal himself to us and show himself so that we could learn to say, you really do accept me. 
you really do come after me. In Romans 15, it says, For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons and daughters, which cry out, Abba, Father, Daddy. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God, and fellow heirs of Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. He calls you child. Can you approach, the, can you come in here to sing a song or to pray in your closet with the faith of a 16-month-old? You know, just like kids now, so many of them, their first words are da, da, daddy. A Hebrew child, it was ab, ab, abba. It's a lot to take in. Can, can I love on God like that? I'm, just, I'm so formal in my love right? I look at all this stuff. He's, you have to really be able to get religion out of you and understand that he's longing for relationship. So when Natalie, who's my youngest daughter, was about 16 months old, she, was, uh, she had a cold. And you know, she had been walking from about 10 months. And so any parent in here knows like your kid is like super fun, and then they're like running around destroying things, and you're like, ah, you know. And But she's got a cold, and so she, all she wants to do is just sit on me, and it's the best. I'm just sitting there loving on this kid, and she's a natural-born snuggler. Lots of you know this. She'll snuggle with strangers. She, it's all, it's, might be a problem. <laughs> but um, We, uh, so the prized snack in our house at the time was Disney Princess Fruit Snacks. Um, which are kind of gross, but they loved them. And so we went and we got the last pack, throw the box away, we go sit down. And, and we, I'm just sitting there holding her, we're watching some probably Dora or something like that. Um, and I can feel her like looking at me. She's just laying on me and I look down at her and she's just glancing at me and she's eating these things. I mean, and this kid's, in, she's not like flu sick, but she's sick enough. She's snotty and her eyes are all watery and stuff like that and um but I'm enjoying the the peacefulness of this moment just sitting with her and she looks up at me pondering and going what is she thinking about and she has this fruit snack halfway in her mouth and she pulls it out and it grabs a large glob of snot on the way out and she shoves it into my mouth That girl wanted to bless her dad. And this is all she had. She, all she knew was she had this, this little thing that she loved. It was the best. And she sat there with it, and she went, you know who else would love this? My father. And she passed it on to me, and I did. I swallowed that freaking thing. Because <laughs> I was not... I understood it immediately by the grace of God. This was the model for worship for me. She's just like, I want to sit with you. I want to bless you. This is what I have. Because honestly, what do we have really to offer God? When we come in here, the power and the majesty and all the things that we've just described, what do we really have to offer? Filthy rags as the scripture would say. It is also said, 
That worship is the only thing you can give to God that he doesn't already have. Because you are built to worship, you will worship something, and you have a choice on where you will direct your affection and your attention. My prayer for me and my prayer for us as a community here at the cross is that our direction of the direction of our affection and attention would be rightly placed in the person of Jesus and God the Father. In Luke 7, Jesus is invited to dinner at Simon the Pharisee's house. They reclined at the table, and this woman comes in. She's the town harlot, starts weeping at his feet, kissing his feet, drying his feet with her hair, pouring out perfume all over everything she's got. It's probably the most expensive thing she owns. And Simon thinks, if he knew who that girl was, ain't no way he would let her come right there. So Jesus must be ignorant in this situation, is what he's thinking. And Jesus knows his thoughts and says, Simon, I want to tell you a story. Literally, reading the scripture, you almost feel like this pretentious nature inside Simon. He says, oh yeah? Tell me. Jesus says, there's two men. One owes 50 denarii, one owes 500 to a money lender. Neither of them can pay. The money lender forgives both their debts. Who loves that money lender more? He says, oh, I guess the one who forgives more. He says, yeah, you're right. He says, you see this woman? She came in here. When I came in, you never offered me any water to wash my feet. And she has cried, put the water from her tears directly onto my feet. You you never offered me a kiss as I entered your house. She hasn't stopped kissing me since she came in. You didn't offer me any perfume. She dumped out everything she had. How do we approach the king? Who are you in this story? I know. I know that when I leak into the flesh in my own life, cynicism can become a problem. I can walk around and look around and say, oh, that, that person. I can write some backstory about someone that can have all the falsehoods, but it can work right for me. And I can miss God in it and say, Who, what would God speak to you about? And this happened to me yesterday. Someone told me their story of intense pain and I had written a backstory for this person and the Lord wrecked me about it. How do we seek the Father? Do we get low before Him and understand the gravity and the magnitude of the power and glory of who He is but yet that same magnitude and power calls you up and says, come here, sit with me. Be with me. If you can grasp these two things, your worship will just grow. You'll know the character of God. So my prayer for us is that our prayer would be, God, continue to reveal yourself to us. Continue to show yourself. Continue to teach me to see me how you see me. Because my view of me is obviously tainted. So let's shift our perspective of God. Let's understand that our sin plays a part in our interaction and communion with him. And let's begin to see ourselves the way Jesus sees us.
Thank you for joining us for the teaching here at the Cross Loganville. Let me encourage you to access our website, thecrossloganville.org. Tons of information. Uh, we'll answer many of your questions. Contact us via email, info at thecrossloganville.org, or you can call us at 770-554-3322. God bless you. Make it a great day.